This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. In this episode, we sit down with Bradley Camp Davis and talk about his impressive new book, Imperial Bandits, Outlaws and Rebels in the China-Vietnam Borderlands. Well, welcome to another episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. As always, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me is uh, Bradley Camp Davis. Uh, welcome to the studio. Thanks. Although we're not in studio, are we? No. We are in, uh, we're in uh, my home, and uh, just to prepare the listener for some potential fun sounds that might... Uh, <laughs> we have a kitten, so all things are, uh, all things are possible. But thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. This is this is really terrific. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, um, Brad's a, uh, a professor uh, at Eastern Connecticut State University there in the history department. And uh, how long you been there? Uh, since two thousand twelve. Okay. Okay. And uh, and importantly, a new book out this year from University of Washington Press: Imperial Bandits, Outlaws and Rebels in the China Vietnam. Borderlands, congratulations! Thanks, with a very handsome cover. Yeah, yeah, uh, I was really happy with the uh, artwork for the cover. So yeah. So you've got uh, you've got some uh, you got a new book out, and you've got some new research you're uh, you're up to. So maybe we can talk uh, talk about all those things. But uh, for for the listener who may just have gotten your uh, book in there in their hot hands, um, tell us about tell us about Imperial Bandits. What were you what were you trying to trying to do here? Um, well, I, this is kind of the um, uh, the the final product of an extended period of um, of, uh, of following um, some armed groups um, uh, through different kinds of sources, written sources, and also uh, oral traditions, ethnographic work. Um, and uh, yeah, I initially began just asking questions about what what historians have had to say about these groups. Were they, uh, were they sort of early revolutionaries? Were they bandits? Were they essentially like, um, you know, uh, drug dealers, human traffickers? I mean, you, you sort of, you get a variety of different characterizations depending upon um, who you ask and, and, and where um, and, and, and a lot accounts of the, are being published. But. And, and uh, you know, I'm thinking of like... Uh, Matrion Quinn's book uh, that way you know that there's a there's a healthy the the way that the historiography which you look at as well that that that, that bandits have and and you know, outsiders have played you know the in depending on which era of historical writing we're talking about um, you know the, the the Chinese the Vietnamese then the French then the, they they each have their own um, use and uh, to to demonize or lionize mm-hmm. um, these bandits and so. Yeah, it's 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 they they're a fascinating dynamic that tell that they seem to be a cipher to tell us a bit about kind of the 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 historian or the the, the record keeper uh, yeah. as much as they do about the bandit. Is that yeah, an overstatement? And, yeah, know. and I think well, there, there's sort of a couple of different um, there's a couple of different registers here where where the word and really the word bandit became really important for the project that I was doing, and this is it gets addressed in the book. Yeah, I, noticed I noticed they're not called freedom fighters. <laughs> they're not called freedom fighters, and they're not called terrorists. Um, so you're siding right now with, uh, with I'm, the I'm making, I'm making a definitive statement yeah, like that they're imperial, probably like, not freedom okay. fighters. Uh, but interestingly enough, for um, some of these groups, uh, there are um, accounts that really um, there are accounts that really kind of uh, play up. Supposedly revolutionary aspects of these groups, and but mm. most of these accounts tend to appear during periods of really intense political, um, you know, uh, dur- during very intense political times, either in China or in Vietnam. So, for instance, so, I mean, so for, the, for a list, right, you'll probably do this, but give yeah. us a, get, drop us into kind of a time and a place for the for the setting. Imperial Bandits, as the title suggests, is a book that is is dealing with. Um, uh, uh, Questions of, of bandit groups and bandit behavior um, focused on the border area between Vietnam and China from about 1860 to the okay. very early 20th century. And I follow um, uh, a couple of major groups that emerged out of this failed 
uh, rebellion in southern China that managed to um, survive because of its relationship to the overland opium trade connecting China and Vietnam. And I followed the stories of, uh, of the Black Flag Army and the Yellow Flag Army, sort of the two main groups. Um, the Black Flags wind up becoming um, allies of the Vietnamese imperial state, uh, despite the fact that they were rebels from China uh, they get involved in fighting some um, uh, rebellions that the Vietnamese imperial government was uh, dealing with, and they were awarded uh, official status. So they become the imperial and imperial bandits is, is meant to sort of highlight the fact that you have these groups that you could describe analytically as bandits, and I think it's still valid to do so, but they're very much a part of the official projection of power and authority. And this is a practice that, I mean, it doesn't begin with this period. Yeah. It's a practice that continues into the French colonial period. And I would even argue even further into the 20th century. Like there's this kind of interdependence. You know. and, they, and they seem to like a lot of uh, hinterlands, whether it's the, the, the uplands in, in the mainland or the, 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 the Orang Laut, the so-called sea gypsies in, the, in maritime, that there's this, uh, that they're often co-opted by successful states to, to work for them in a conjunction. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the kind of always outsider, yeah, um, yeah. is not, is not, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. Well, I yeah. think that there's, there's an example from, uh, from the history of Java, unless I'm mistaken of the, of the Petingi or like the exalted people who are, um, during the Mataram, I guess, Sultanate, they were kind of, uh, recruited, in, into the the official sort of you know uh, uh, political projects, even though they, you know, in a lot of other respects, weren't really normal officials, if that makes sense. I mean, they were kind of right. they had a very loose sort of sense of loyalty to what to to the state, although they were very useful to the state. So yeah, and in, and obviously, in, in you know, our listeners probably know, but the the the. The lines that we see on the map are fairly recent, and right, new, and, right, and, right, and, yeah, and, right, and right, and and loyalties were were uh, maybe temporary and fleeting, and 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 multiple. Um, so those uh, those loose um, and and um, you know men could serve more than one master, and so right, the, yeah, those right. those people were part of that complex. Do I close this? Yeah, so go ahead and oh, okay, so we go jump ahead. in um, when you. Yeah, and, and, and part of uh, an important part of the story of these groups, um, as you go from, so the, the book is dealing with um, a period of, of, of history in, in Southeast Asia and in China um, and in Vietnam and in China that's actually fairly busy. I mean, the 19th century is the time when uh, the um, uh, formal arrangements of French colonial rule are being worked out in Laos and in Cambodia and in Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, this is a few decades after the Treaty of Nanjing in China, so the idea of Chinese territorial sovereignty has become somewhat fractured in the face of concessions to you know, European powers in Japan and the United States. Um, and all of these things are happening around these imperial bandit groups. And one of the things, I mean, you mentioned lines, the actual border line separating um, China and Vietnam, um, which certainly existed prior to French colonial rule, um, but when the line gets redrawn in the 1890s, these groups are at the center of this. Um, and uh, the yellow flags are providing in, 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 you security. Mean, you mean they're, they're, they're the ones who, they, they recognize they're... Mm. they're their territory should be where the mar where the border is. Or? Well, I mean, th there was an, uh, um, just one one of the episodes that gets explained uh, uh, in some detail in the book. Um, the um, in the eighteen late eighteen seventies, there was an attempt by the French military to reach out and negotiate with uh, with the Black Flags, which is this group that, by this point in their history, they were. Uh, linked with the Vietnamese Empire, and they also had this reputation for being um, allies, military, military allies of, of Vietnam. Um, and when France attempted to negotiate directly with them, they offered to sort of 
pay cash for all the territory that the black flags controlled. And this was territory that, if you're thinking of in contemporary terms, Yunnan province in southwestern China and then the city of Lao Cai in Vietnam. So they kind of controlled most of the trade in, in uh, opium, tea, silver, um, uh, potentially even human beings. Val- and and valuable commodities. Yeah, yeah. And there was an attempt by the French to basically purchase the port from them. Uh, in a way, in, in a you know, an effort to uh, prevent further hostilities, and, they, and the black flags turned them down because they, they didn't. I mean, I guess they didn't like the valuation, you know. So they wa- <laughs> they wanted to parlay, and they didn't like the terms, so they just walked away from it. And uh, and as a result, uh, you know, um, and this then a few years later, there was a sort of you know the, the war between China and France over the issue of Vietnam. Um, uh, breaks out in, in the Red River Delta um, uh, after these negotiations failed. So, you know, you think of borderlands as being things that are far from the center, either politically or far from the center of the story. And, and similarly, people might think of bandits or outlaw groups as being kind of, you know, underworld, underworldish or sort of, you know, like kind of, you know, uh, like outre or whatever. But um, they're, if they're fairly intimately involved with with formal political authority. And there's even kind of a theoretical point that you can, you can make. Um, uh, I mean, uh, you know, other people who've written about this um, have dealt with, uh, you know, in, in a comparative sense, when Hobsbawm is writing about bandits as, as early revolutionaries or as social bandits. I mean, the first yeah. title of his book was actually Primitive Rebels. And then he changed it to social bandits when that became politically sort of problematic to call people <laughs> primitive. But, you know, what, what he meant was, and he's writing this with a very particular kind of Marxist endgame in mind, that these are kind of precursors to socialist revolutionaries. They just don't quite have the political program together. But you could also write about it. Uh, there was um, uh, Anton Bloch who wrote, uh, he was a historical anthropologist, uh, and wrote about uh, the mafia in Sicily. I guess still is a historical anthropologist. I don't think he's. I think he's still with us. Uh, Dutch academic, and he made the point that you know, when you see so-called bandit groups or so-called outlaw groups, what you're really seeing is um, a, a collectivity that's able to exist in this space in between ordinary people and the political state, and that they can they can be helpful or they can be harmful. But they're ultimately going to do what's in the interest of the group. Some have theorized that uh, in, in perhaps in in contemporary Southeast Asia, that, um, that what we would call we would call corruption or we would call you know criminal activity is really the the that in, in when states that either are are highly dysfunctional or or don't have a reach at all that this is the only with governmentality really that that the bandits are the the are the are the only, they're people's only interaction or, or perhaps the only one that that delivers they delivers some bad but the only the ones who can provide maybe protection or can or can get things done is this uh um do the do these black flag yellow flag like how are they perceived by by the just, just the your your everyday southeast asians it's just it's just trying to grow their yeah. grow their crops or sell to sell market well, their goods well that's really part of the you know um wh- when i first got into doing this research i mean i had this very um i had this very specific idea of what i wanted to do um, and I wanted to try to find a way to put into some kind of conversation or some kind of dialogue um, uh, textual evidence and oral evidence. And you know, I was coming at this as a historian, but I was coming at this as a historian who, I mean, despite the fact that you, you have all of these materials that are in, in classical Chinese and, or in French or in, in other, you know, uh, sort of forms of... Uh, of written the 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 way that the Vietnamese language is written uh, in official sources during this period tends to be in a what we might call a logographic or a character-based script. So, um, 
you had all of this textual evidence, but I also knew that the, when people were writing in Vietnam and in Vietnamese in the 20th century about these groups, they were discussing the role of oral oral history, but also what what um, Jan van Sina, the historian of Africa, once called oral tradition, and that there's um, you know stories people tell at villages, stories that people write down stories that people don't write down, and even to some extent lies that people make up about things that happened or exaggerations that they might make. So I wanted to find a way to put these two things in dialogue. And I didn't have the kind of... I guess I was always frustrated by some historians who seem to assume that written sources were more valid. Those were true. Yeah. And the oral ones were the telephone game. They're more reliable because it's written down. But, you know, people... I mean, documents lie. And you can Whoa. you can write down scoop, something. Scoop here on Crossroads. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're breaking. Are you telling me that everything you read? Bold <laughs> new epistemic ground here. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No. It's yeah. yeah. Um, right. But, but but there there is this assumption that like that that uh, um, naive one that uh, I have a document that was written at this date and time yeah. so. I can kind of it's a portal as where as where the the oral tradition and, and they. Yeah, that's it's it's too too easy on the written source, too hard on the oral source. Well, you have like, this. Yeah. So there's a um, uh, when when I was in graduate school and I was taking a, um, you know, like like anyone doing Southeast Asian history, and uh, you, you are really terrific with this at at, at NIU uh, with your graduate students. But you know, language training is key. I mean, even if you're uh, only getting trained in one language, but if you're doing Southeast Asian history, particularly for the for for Vietnam, I mean, it's you're you're going to have to get comfortable in French, in Vietnamese, in in Chinese, also, and uh, possibly other languages along the way. And when I was learning, when I was doing a, a course in classical Chinese, when I was in graduate school, there was a an older edition of the of the textbook we were using. Uh, from like the 50s or the 60s, mm-hmm. and, and the introduction said that um, uh, that you know translation is the art of reaching across the, the reaching back into the field of original meaning. Whoa! And that, and that like you know, <laughs> and he, the the, uh, the the author of this book was comparing this to historical research, saying that everyone knows that if you want to know what really happened, you need to find the primary sources because that's why they're the primary sources, and then you can reconstruct. The truth, and, and, and again, like to even if there, like some of the documents I work with, where I, you know, I find some some legal confession, and I'm thinking like, okay, like here's well, here's what happened, and then like I find an, I find another source like, oh wait, uh, this woman was tortured three times, and and each of those and each of those uh confessions were different under torture and then finally like surprise surprise um she ends up saying what the state wants her right. to say right uh, like so right. so even so the, the the how we got to that written source how that thing got on the paper is right right is, right. is, is and, its own huge bag of worms and, like, and you can you can do what i think and i, I think it's it's th- there have been historians of indonesia who've been really really good at this um you know uh, um uh and and Stoller, uh, uh, Rudolf Mrazik, you know, c- kind of asking anthropological questions of historical sources, right? Yeah. And but you know, I, I I didn't want to sort of try to recreate somebody else's um, sensibility, but I was really inspired by all this stuff when I got into it. You know, I wanted to find a way to tell these stories that that front loaded my own kind of um, grappling. With with what it meant to be doing historical research, like I didn't really feel like it would be useful for me to just put that aside and march on with the project. I actually yeah. wanted to be continually asking questions. And, you know, as a result, it probably took me much longer um, uh, to finish the book than um, than it would have if I wasn't asking these questions. But you know, I I, I felt like it was the uh, the most honest approach. So what? So so. Um, tell us what is the what did the the Vietnamese and then and then subsequently the French end end, end up doing with these uh, with these bandits? Oh, what, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 um for for the for the black flags. Um, 
great music, by the way. Yeah, really. And, and you know, when, when they brought Rollins in, I was very skeptical because Keith Morris was such a big force. I'm, I'm going to pride myself for waiting this long to, no, you, you, to well, say well, that. Like, you, it's you know, it's, it's um when when I first started, and you you could leave this and you could leave this in, but when I fir- when I first started this project, uh, um, uh, Keith Snodgrass, who's who's a who's a, an old friend now, uh, but he was the um, administrative assistant at the South Asian Studies Center at the University of Washington. And they had an office right next door to the Southeast Asia Studies Center. Okay. And when I first was beginning this project in graduate school, um, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I had like a draft of my research proposal and it had black flags on there. And, and my friend Keith uh, uh, saw this and said, dude, I was on tour with those guys. <laughs> And it, it took him for like for like a few a few minutes. I just let him go, and I, did, I didn't right. want to correct him. I wanted to yeah. hear the stories, and he was. I was really skeptical when they hired that guy from DC, but you know he seems to have made a pretty good career for himself, though. And I said, yeah, I guess Henry Rollins has done okay, um, Keith. But uh, yeah, no. Uh, so w- with the with the black flags, you know, what's interesting is that you um, and you asked about everyday people who were just kind of you know. Uh, not necessarily thinking in terms of political policy or, you know, people who are just growing their crops or, or trading things and just trying to exist. Um, this is really where uh, um, the oral tradition research became very, very important. Um, in Vietnam, for many imperial officials in the 1860s and 70s, the black flags were a potentially very useful, powerful ally against what they felt were um, uh, the kind of destabilizing forces of, of domestic rebellion, but also interference by the uh, French colonial authorities who had a base in Saigon during this period. For other Vietnamese imperial officials, hiring the black flags, which was sort of the result of a, uh, a decision made in 1862, 1863, when black flag officers were given official appointments. For other officials, this was a betrayal of what they felt was the sort of uh, mission to create a, uh, a harmonizing cultural influence. Um, there's language very thick with references to um, things from the Warring States texts, from Confucian texts, from Mencius, from uh, sort of even some Ming period texts that talk about the ability of an imperial government to pull, to actually pull virtue out of its subjects and to develop people. As they say in, in Vietnamese, they would say to hua them, to transform them into um, good civilized uh, subjects, you know. Um, so the people who seem to be the true believers. It's, it's funny that, that you uh, know, the, the critics of the French, assume they were the first ones to like, to try to you know, civilizing mission. The, oh, the, the Chinese sure, have been yeah. doing this much longer. Well, I mean, it's, it's, and I think that <laughs> there's the probably a pretty steady tradition of, 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 you know, civilizing missions, but also the disappointment of these civilizing missions, right? And one, one of the central kind of questions that I really wanted to grapple with, telling the story particularly of the black flags, is how, you know, how did Vietnamese elites attempt to reconcile um, having a civilizing mission that is dependent upon the kind of culture of violence that was promoted by many of these groups. Uh, acts of performative violence, like you know, raids, torture, maiming of the body. Um, and I guess the conclusion I came to about that was that the Vietnamese Empire, the French Empire, and, and the Chinese Empire, the Qing Empire, really relied on violence. Uh, and, and I wound up making a statement in the book about how these are early modern like, empires. They have their are, own, they have those own, con- they're contradict like we do for, you yeah, know, like yeah, yeah. bombing people to, well, to Sure, to, yeah. To or peace, even like, just the, the, the everyday institutionalization yeah. of violence, which is yeah. more or less everywhere. Um, yeah, so the, I guess those yeah. contradictions are, they're, are, they, are, they, are they thought through? I mean, are they, or, or, or brushed under? You know, it's, it, what's interesting is that for some Vietnamese officials, um, they're thought through, and um, Vietnamese officials... Yeah, I, can, I, can who, ma- I can imagine officials really sort of yeah. drunk the Kool-Aid and like, we're here, we're, we're better than them, we're trying to like 
bring like to these you know benighted people yeah. and then realizing yeah. that you have to resort to violence well and there, there are people who's, who are fairly enthusiastic about resorting to violence um, <laughs> and then there are people who are more reluctant um, the people who are more reluctant and who wind up becoming critics of the black flags uh, almost to a person with some exceptions um, wind up endorsing the establishment of French colonial rule over Vietnam. Uh-huh. And they become kind of the, the, the sort apologist of... Apologist or, or well... Well, no, no, just uh, uh, um, partners. Yeah. N- not even apologists or collaborators. But, right. And, and th- there's another kind of way that I've, I, I hint at in the book, but this was also the subject of an article I wrote a few years ago, that the establishment of French colonial authority... In over northern Vietnam, you could also understand this as an event within domestic Vietnamese politics. In other words, there was a, a faction within the imperial bureaucracy that was loudly advocating for working with France. And this same faction, they were the same people, almost to a person, who were opposed to hiring the black flags as officials. <laughs> Interesting. So, like, for them, this was the continuance of a particular political vision of what Vietnam should be. And even if it needed France right. to we'll, achieve we'll that, help it the fr- Exactly. Yeah. The, French can, the French can help us in, yeah. Our, yeah. in this yeah. path. Um, but for, I mean, just real, yeah. ordinary people, which I guess is where the, you know, the, 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 the stories and everything else comes in. Um, uh, I mean, there was a, the reason why Bandit is so useful is that, well, I mean, if someone's hired and they're official, how are they a Bandit? I mean, you can't really call them yeah. a Bandit if they have a salary. Well, you know, it's, it's a way to really remind everyone that uh, you can't take, you know, official historiography or I guess what some people have called elite historiography at face value. Like you have to read through sources, you have to ask questions, you have to have a hard look at the documents. You know, it goes beyond reading against the grain. You're actually sort of reading behind the grain, I guess. Um, And uh, oral traditions tend to refer to these groups as bandits. And the higher up the mountain you go, the more aggressive that language becomes. And 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 you've done a bit of that. Yeah. To, and look, like I don't I don't know what you're thinking, but you've really you've really compl- <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. You've really complicated. You know, like the, <laughs> the 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 greatest thing about being a historian is that like we don't have to like get permission from dead people to, to tell the story. You know, there's no right right, IR, right. No institutional review. There's board. no IRB just, for dead folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just like you know yeah. like uh, um, you can just you can just do that. But you've you've chosen to to. Have the have the I, uh, higher standard that well, historians I, I, operate I, I, under. I but don't know. I don't the, know. Uh, I, higher in terms of altitude and elevation. <laughs> I don't know if it's if it's higher in terms of you know in, in other respects. But um, yeah, and and I, I to be perfectly honest, I, I did not understand quite how complicated it would be when I first began. Um, when I was in graduate school, and you know, okay, I, I, that'd be a good idea to go. Yeah, and I, and, 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 it, yeah. and it was written in, it was written into the grant proposals I had for the project, and 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 it was, uh, you know, I understood uh, intellectually it was really important for me to do this. Um, I felt like there was a tradition not only in Vietnam but also in, excuse me, in China. And so for the for the listener, like it's not like you're just like, well, I'm just gonna go to Hanoi and talk to people. Like, right, 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 this right, is- right. Um, I made the decision that I would um, get um, sort of um, human subjects, uh, you know, uh, uh, an exemption from from the uh, institutional research board or review board uh, to do uh, oral tradition research, which you know, which which was an incredibly useful process, yeah. right? But no, I um, I combined working in in archives, mostly in Hanoi, but some library connect- collections in in towns in northern Vietnam with doing ethnographic work, um, going uh, up into uh, areas where the black flags had uh, control from about 1863 to 1883 or so, and just um, uh, hanging out and uh, talking with people. And I didn't hand out surveys. You know, I didn't do the sort of sociological thing where you give everybody an evaluation form and then they... They rate right. it five to eight or whatever, and uh, it, I was much more interested in, you know, the the, the kind of work done by people. Um, uh, uh, Stephen Harrell, I guess, who's an anthropologist of China. Ralph Listinger, who works on Yao communities in southern China. Um, uh, 
you know, other sort of anthropologists working on Southeast Asia. I mean, Eric Harms, who works on Vietnam, um, is just one example. You know, people who are doing kind of, you know, um, n- not necessarily talking about informants, but just doing some ethnographic hanging out. So did, were there were there, were there echoes of those uh, the black and yellow flags in the in the in the discourses that are still in the stories that are still told? Yeah, um, and a, a, a lot of them sort of found their way um, into the book itself, particularly ones I could put into into conversation with information from uh, written sources. You know, um, there were allegations in in the official paperwork of. Uh, the black flags conducting raids against villages and kidnapping children and, and, and mm. you know all this stuff, and that was really backed up by a lot of the oral traditions. Right uh, there, there was there years. was a, there was a traumatic memory of some of that. Yeah, and 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 uh, th- there were also stories of ways that people resisted mm-hmm. uh, these groups, um, and uh, those also sort of find their way into the book. Um, and uh, a lot of these things were not necessarily um, um, not necessarily surprising, I suppose. Just given what I knew about the uh, uh, about the events before I began doing this kind of ethnographic work, but um, it was also a reminder. And I guess this is where I, I really started to push my own thinking around a little bit. Um, you know, there's there's this sort of artificial division between the past and the present. I mean, without sounding too precious. Um, and, you know, you, you like to think that, you know, you're a researcher and, okay, I'm, I'm here engaging in this research and I'm going to show up and do this research for a little while. And then when I'm done, I, I maybe I'll have different questions, but then there'll be some kind of product that I produce at the end of it. Um but you know the research you're doing is it may be about the past, but it's it's located in 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 the present moment of you being there, which becomes a different form of the past later on. I guess we're sitting here talking about it now. These are things that happened yeah. a few years ago. Um, but uh, things that were going on around the context of these of of these exchanges um, show up in a lot of these oral traditions. Um, one of my favorite. Um, stories to kind of retell, and I've and I've I've given this talk in in in, in Vietnam and in France and and in uh, in in the U.S. Um, given a few different talks on this project, and and um, there's this story that doesn't really make its way into the way, make its way into the book, but I think it's pretty important. Um, during a long weekend of just sort of like visiting some of the places where I had been visiting. For the for a few months, um, you know, it was a uh, end of the day, and we were just chatting with some people who were kind of, you know, giving me suggestions about w- other villages I might visit to go and talk to. You know, someone uh, walked up to the group, and we we're all just kind of sitting around chatting, having some some tea or some alcohol or something, and someone walked up and said, uh, "Black flags, yeah." They were from China, and the yellow flags, they also came down from China. And then the white flags, um, well, that was a rebellion, and that was probably us. And then everyone laughed. And he said, but don't forget the red flags. And then a couple of people chuckled. You know, And I'm being a good, you know, diligent <laughs> researcher, and I'm thinking, God, I'm scratching my brain here. You know? So I've heard of a red flag rebellion in the 1870s, and in Tainhua province, but that's really far from here, you know? So, so yeah. I actually asked him, in, you know, in all earnestness, I said, so w- what is this red flag thing? And he says, well, the red flags, uh, well, they, uh, they came mostly from Hanoi, and they showed up um, in the 50s, and uh, they, they said we couldn't farm opium anymore, and then now they uh, open up uh, tourist shops, <laughs> And they invite backpackers to come and walk around our villages. And also some historians. <laughs> and then everyone just collapsed into laughter. Right. So, you know, th- th- there, was this, there was this relationship between, you know, the imperial past and, and the, the, the sort of uh, socialist present in Vietnam. And I, was, I became very aware of that the longer I was doing this work. And it led in, this project led into other projects that have, you know, that are continuing with. 
some of the some of the uh, other great anecdotes that you've done and you've collected in your research and in your in your book are some of the miscommunications and some of the the w- between the the French incursions and sort of the early explorations and trade and commerce. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, give a few of those to our listeners. Oh, so so the the, the Dupuis thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. So never gets old. <laughs> never gets old. So uh, um, yeah, this is something we uh, I uh, talked about during the the uh, the talk yesterday at NIU. Um, uh, so Jean Dupuis was this um, uh, basically gun runner, um, uh, you know, a merchant, uh, an entrepreneur. Um, I think he, I think uh, David Marr, one of the uh, uh, sort of the founding figures of, of Vietnamese history in English once called uh, Dupuis a consummate huckster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jean Dupuis had these uh, uh, weapons contracts to sell um, guns to Chinese officials in southwest China. And he was based in another part of China for a while. And, and what year are we talking now? Oh, uh, we're talking uh, eighteen, early eighteen seventies. Okay. Yeah. Um. And uh, you know, he had some some Le Fachot rifles. He had some decommissioned U.S. Civil War rifles, and he was, you know, uh, moving these things uh, into southwestern China. First, going to Hong Kong, and then going the overland route from Hong Kong to Kunming, which takes a really really long wow. time, and it's mountains and everything. Yeah. With and guns, with guns. So, uh, and he decides that rather than navigating all the different, you know, rivers and everything else in that part of southern China, the, the easiest thing to do would be to just take the Red River, which goes through the Red River Delta from uh, Haif- from Hanoi, Nemding, all the way up to to mm, Yunnan Province. Um, and then you have to go overland to Kunming after you get to China, but but a lot easier oh, by, as, as on yeah. a map. As on a map, it, yeah. it looks yeah. like it would just yeah. be a no-brainer. And so he does this with uh, you know four or five ships, um, with this sort of letter of introduction from a Chinese official, um, and uh, he gets sort of he makes contact with some Dominican missionaries um, in the area around Haiphong, and uh, he makes this trip. And uh, unbeknownst to him, he's being tracked and followed by the Vietnamese imperial authorities who are kind of concerned about this French guy with lots of weapons. That's, um, and uh, along the way, he, um, he sort of uh, begins announcing his arrival to certain Vietnamese population centers along the Red River and along other smaller rivers by uh, firing gunshots. Which is which was a, a thing that you would do in, in southern China. It was sort of like Pearl River Delta. It seemed to have been more common, um, and you can sort of track when when Dupuis arrives and he would fire a gunshot outside the the sort of gates of the village. Reports started appearing in Vietnamese sources saying that we seem to be under attack by this French guy on boats, <laughs> and so then. Shortly thereafter, they send people with food and, and supplies and, and, out and to the boat. And Dupuis like, "Hey, we're 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 we, we're we being just, welcomed yeah. enthusiastically by yeah. people who are sending out supplies." When in <laughs> fact, it was people, you know, oh, okay, we got fired on, so let's just give them supplies and maybe they'll go away. Um, uh, there's also, I mean, the, the story of Dupuis is is told in in some detail in the book um, because it, it kind of exemplifies and sort of his attitude about what happens to him. Uh, when he's trying to move these these guns through Vietnam, really exemplifies the um, um, the early, uh, I guess you might say, like like um, um, frustrations that that people were um, um, using as an excuse to criticize the Vietnamese imperial authorities. So, in the build up to French colonial rule in Vietnam, one of the sort of themes that gets offered is that the Vietnamese authorities are, are damaging free trade. And so in order to protect free trade, we need to destroy the Vietnamese uh, imperial bureaucracy so that we can, we can trade freely. Um, there, the system of sort of, uh, of, of, of controls that were in place over certain goods like salt or weapons or opium uh, Dupuis is more or less regarded as you know someone who's not necessarily following the rules, not really following the norms. Um, he's detained, he's arrested for attempting to move salt from place to place. 
Um, he also kind of encounters this, you know, uh, the, the other funny miscommunication is that in, in Dupuis' own writings, when he's, he's describing events that happen to him as he's trying to move up the Red River, he keeps saying that the Vietnamese imperial authorities are trying to frustrate his, um, his intentions, and they're trying to block him from, from what will surely be a benefit to everyone. When in fact, what was happening was he's that just, he's just he's just a believer in free trade. Man. He's a believer in free trade, man. You know, because we all know that that's that that's you know that that's actually it's, it's a new, thing. It's right? neutral. It's uh, it doesn't it's discriminate good for everyone. You know? Yeah. So, um, but what in, in reality though, what was happening, and you can see this if you if you look at the uh, imperial sources, right, is that. Um, there's a system of reporting going on, and people are trying to verify his credentials. He hasn't come through the court in Hue, which would have been standard for any foreigner doing business. If he'd done it the proper way, he might have been able to... Well, he may, he might not have been given permission if he no. attempted to do it the proper way, but yeah. he didn't even try to do it the proper way. Right. right. Um, and But what this becomes in Dupuis' account is, oh, these awful, corrupt officials that are trying to prevent civilization and commerce and everything else... And what it becomes in the Vietnamese imperial sources is uh, this highly irregular foreign merchant who probably needs to be sent to Hong Kong or at the very least to Haiphong, somewhere close to the ocean while we sort out what he's supposed to be doing here. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, like uh, a bureaucracy that has its own you know, very sophisticated, very well thought through. Like, you know, it, it's, it's not uh, the, the kind of, um, you know, he's not, he's not waving uh, this is the bright, shiny objects in front of this. Isn't, this isn't the encounter that happens in sort of the, uh, the you know, the, the Arawak and, and Columbus and the Caribbean. This is, this is, these are, these are peers essentially. Uh, and well, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a 19th century, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a, a foreign merchant, attempting to do commerce in a sovereign 19th century empire without the proper paperwork, essentially, is, is, what, is what it amounts to. Your work on the, your work on the rebels, um, you've, have, you put a, uh, have you put an end on it for the, for the, for the book? Or what's, uh, what's in the hopper for the future? Are there, are there more... More so, you know, with my own and talking to other people, you know, there's mm-hmm. part of part of finishing a project. You realize you have to like you have like suitcases full of stuff you you can't use and you've got to just put away and and yeah. to, to finish a, a certain thing. And, right. Uh, so, right, right. Are, are you going to continue? Or are you going to uh, well, a different there's, direction? There's a couple of there's a couple of traces that I want to sort of follow up on, um, and um, I think one will probably take the form of an article. Um, I mean, you know, we you know. We, we're lucky in that we have sort of conferences and workshops that we can we can, uh, I guess, workshop this stuff at. Yeah. And, um, uh, one case involved a, um, uh, a, a homicide in the 1890s um, uh, that was uh, seemed to be a, a murder by hire that wound up killing a Catholic priest in in northern Vietnam in some of the areas where the black flags were active beforehand. Um, and in sort of following the paperwork for this investigation, I realized that um, you have a movie script in your hands. I don't have a. I, <laughs> I won't say it's a movie script, but what I what I what I realized was that um, there are these different um, uh, uh, layers of of, uh, of paperwork. There's kind of a polyglot administration going on. So um, people who are going to take verbal statements from witnesses record these verbal statements in a script known in, in Vietnamese as Han Nom, or uh, the sort of uh, demotic logographic script based on Chinese writing. Um, and uh, there is an assumption in the f- for some people who work on Vietnam that the Romanized script was, um, uh, you know, vanquished all other forms of writing Vietnamese during the French period and that no one really used characters and that doesn't seem to have been the case. Um, that, in fact, local administrators were taking down oral confessions in this character script that was then translated into French hmm. uh, for the benefit of the of the French officials. But if you compare the two versions, there are some significant differences. Um, is is it is it a case where um, 
you know, they're using the like the in in the in the VOC, it's the overgekomen brief, and where you have the, you have the the letters that are shipped to back to um, the Netherlands, the the kind of the summaries, and uh, yeah, those are great. Those give, but 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 yeah. the they're 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 based on a mountain of yeah um, yeah of it's, the actual. There's a little bit of that, yeah yeah, and and uh, but these were things that more or less stayed. Um, I mean, it would have been sent to the Résidence Supérieure, and um, did they send the originals too, or did they just send the French? Obviously, probably just the French. Well, the, the, the originals were in the same file, but I mean, I, whether or not a uh, military official would know. Han Nome and would be able to read the original Probably statements not. is another yeah. yeah is another question altogether. Um, so th- there'll be something about that. Um, I've got a a couple of pieces on. Um, uh, oh, I have, I have a piece on a uh, uh, someone who was uh, an official ally of the Black Flags that should be coming out in the next year or so. Uh, a guy named uh, Juan K. Viem who wrote a. Um, a really interesting um, uh, pedagogic, like a uh, like gun manual in in the eighteen sixties, trying to convince, uh, you know, uh, otherwise not militarily inclined civil officials to learn how to use rifles. Um, and this is something I found in the National Library. That, that was the French official Wayne Lapierre. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> it was the Vietnamese version. I don't know if I compare him to Wayne Lapierre, uh, but uh, no, that was terrible. <laughs> that, that was that was pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> Leave that in if you want. But um, but uh, yeah, there, there's the, it'll probably. You know, what was interesting is that in the course of doing the, this work and in the course of sort of the um, the. Uh, I mean, I say it's not, this is where I almost kind of stumble a bit because, you know, I, I, I have described the oral tradition stuff as being somehow not traditionally historical, but frankly, I mean, Herodotus and Thucydides, I mean, this is, you know, people have yeah. been have right. been having this argument for a very long time. I mean, and, and also in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia, people have been having this argument over, you know, what counts as history and what, you know. Um, but uh, one of the things that grew out of the Bandit Project was this... Um, uh, uh, a digital uh, humanities project surrounding the uh, script of the Yao communities in Vietnam, um, uh, Mian, usually in, in Thailand, called called Mian. Um, and uh, this is an ethnic group that lives in southern China, Thailand, in Laos to some extent, uh, and also in Vietnam. Uh, they speak a language related to Hmong. Um, and they have a literary tradition of using uh, Chinese-style script as a religious language, as a sort of a written source. So one of the ongoing things that um, I've been involved in is a uh, uh, kind of like a two-fisted project to provide a a context for Gao literacy to continue in the 21st century by employing... um, uh, elders from Yao communities to teach the script to younger people, but um, this also was, this is a Ford Foundation. Yeah, 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 it was yeah. it was funded uh, uh, funded by uh, Ford beginning in two thousand seven when they still had an office in in Vietnam, and um, uh, yeah, it was uh, funded by the uh, uh, Intangible Cultural Heritage Fund. I think Mike DiGregorio was our um, instrumental in getting support yeah. for us. Oh, shout out to Mike. Um, I think is at the Asia Foundation now, but I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so this is uh, basically what this resulted in. We worked with them to also establish a, a digital corpus of works in this script. And so we have several thousand of these texts now that um, I'm, uh, uh, I've, I've got most of them. Some of them are in digital copy in France. The originals are all with the communities in Vietnam. They can do what they like with them. But we wanted to at least create a, a resource for people to yeah, be and there and there I guess there there uh, ensures that are preserved if something would happen to the original and and the, are these are these available um, to the to the public online? Well, are we'd they, like we'd like for them yeah. to be and and so there's four or five of us who are involved with the day to day operation of this project, which funding was. Um, Transition from Ford to the CNRS, the, the French Center for National Research, for Scientific Research. And um, then some money from the Ministry of Culture in Vietnam was actually added to, to keep the schools running and to keep the, uh, the archiving right. going. 
But um, yeah, I mean, the goal is to have a, a web resource where people can, I mean, there, there are all these platforms like, like Mirador, uh, which is a, a platform that this uh, project at Yale University is using that basically creates a uh, sort of a, a, a multifaceted interface where people can look at a digital scan of a text and have comment bubbles annotating it yeah. and discussing it. And this becomes kind of a living, organic reading of the text among several different users. And I think we'd like to have something like that eventually. It's just a question of finding, uh, you know, an institutional base for it. So. Yeah, no, it sounds, it sounds, yeah, keep us, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be looking out for that. Yeah, um, no, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Where can, yeah. where can listeners find your, uh, find your book? Oh, well. The, the usual stuff? Yeah, like? the usual sort of, you know, the usual places. Um He's got a Subaru, University got of Washington a Subaru Outback parked in the parking I, lot. At New a, Haven. Uh, um. It's not an Outback. <laughs> okay. It's an Impreza. Oh, um, well. But uh, <laughs> the contract was too good. Uh, no, no. University of Washington Press. Uh, paperback, thirty dollars list. I think you can. I think nice. you can get it slightly less on Amazon. Uh, but we we got a very generous. Um, we had some very generous support from the Association of Asian Studies that enabled us to. Um, put a, a paperback out. Um, yeah, that's great. At a, at a lower lower price. But, student, uh, students and classrooms to get their hands on it uh, yeah, sooner. Than yeah, you know. absolutely. Uh, but I, 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 yeah, I know it's I know it's on Amazon, but you can also order directly from the press yeah. from UW Press. Um, and uh, yeah, so and also the uh, um, large box of books that I carry around with me everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, great. Uh, thanks for thanks for sitting, Bradley. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Crossroads would like to thank Michael McSweeney for his production assistance and Joe Kinzer for today's music.